Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The fallout from U.S.-inspired sanctions against Russia are causing significant blowback as the U.S. empire sees a rising protest throughout its system of vassal territories. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Margaret Kimberly. Margaret is actually the Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much. And for those of you who need more information, just go to blackagendareport.com. Lots of great stories and information. Belgian left launches Fridays of Rage against government's failure to tackle cost of living crisis. This is in the peoplesdispatch.org. The Workers' Party of Belgium has demanded that the government cap the rise in fuel and food prices, increase wages and pensions, and tax the excess profits by energy corporations like Inge Electra Bell. Here's something that's interesting, uh, Margaret. We're seeing a groundswell uprise. You know, we could go back to the Amazon um, uh, moves uh, uh, towards uh, organization of labor, and now we're seeing these strikes. It looks like something's going on here, Margaret, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Margaret Kimberly. Well, there were already um, uh, problems around the world for working people caused by corporate power. That's that's the cause of inflation, just to keep it simple. But this disastrous war in Ukraine and the disastrous American uh, decision to sanction uh, Russian oil and governments like that in Belgium, NATO governments, EU governments, going along with this crazy plan, you know, uh, I feel like Biden and his people don't even know how capitalism work. I was, <laughs> I was taught in school if the supply of something is diminished, then the price goes up. So if you restrict uh, a major oil uh, and energy producer, oil and gas producer like Russia, well, hello, the price goes up. And uh, so not only were people already dealing with inflationary pressures, now you have people paying these exorbitant um, uh, prices for energy. And just to put it bluntly, they're going to freeze. There are companies closing down throughout, um, throughout uh, Europe. And then, of course, there's the disaster of the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline, which, uh, what a coincidence, just as people in Germany started protesting and asking for it to be opened, then poof, suddenly there's a uh, there's this sabotage incident. But this is all this all can be laid at the feet of the United States and at leadership of European nations who have gone along with disastrous policies. And leadership of these uh, protests are saying this is spreading and spreading all over Europe. And the groundswell of anger in Germany the groundswell of anger in Belgium, the groundswell of anger in France, how long can the ruling elite hold on before, particularly with their parliamentary systems, how long can these ruling elite hold on before the people with the torches and the pitch, pitchforks make their way into the palaces? 
Well, you know, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be uh, any political organization for the people with the torches and the pitchforks. Uh, Europe has a very weak left. Uh, we're always taught in the U.S. that, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, leftism in Europe, but apparently that's not true anymore because there has been um, a very, and a very strange, very little political opposition. There, People are complaining about their living conditions, and that is always a, a useful and good thing. But there doesn't seem to be political opposition. And we see in Germany, the foreign minister, she said in plain English, literally in English, no need for translation. She speaks English very well. Uh, Ms. Baerbach, she said, I don't care if the uh, uh, voters uh, get mad about the price of energy goes up. I'm my uh, priority is Ukraine and being there when Ukraine needs me. She said that. She did not care about the voters. Now, she said the quiet part out loud, and perhaps there are people with more uh, experience who wouldn't say that, but that's basically how all of them feel. And uh, the EU as a construct has clearly failed. It's created this entity that's not accountable to the people. Uh, every government has lost its sovereignty. And uh, now you have a crisis of U.S. making, but it only shows that these countries are vassal U.S. states. And actually, it's not surprising. They are literally occupied. There are U.S. troops in Germany, in the U.K., in Italy, and other European uh, countries. Margaret, here's one thing I'd ask you to consider. Winter hasn't hit yet. It's coming, and we can see it, but these people aren't freezing yet. And they're not hungry yet, but that's that's coming and it's coming very soon. Uh, in some places, it's already started. I saw a photograph in Twitter of kids in school in the Czech Republic, and they've given them blankets because they have to okay. turn down the go. heat. And so we're we're starting to see it's starting the impact. Yeah, we're starting to see it. Um, my fear is that these same incompetent people, uh, these same ideologues who are in addition to that, not very smart, who have um, no plan B, um, nothing other than uh, wishful thinking that their crazy fantasy will come to pass. They have no other plan except to keep doing what they're doing. And in the case of this pipeline, to make things uh, even worse. So um, that's my my big concern is what the U.S. will do. Something very reckless, something very dangerous. That is my concern. And I but I do hope that people rise up and protest uh, as best they can, because the, these people who are in power in these countries don't deserve to be there. And they are not meeting. They're not even going through the motions of meeting the needs of their people and uh, they should pay a political price for it. You know, I think it's something you said a few minutes earlier about them, you know, that ca this is, you know, basically violative of the capital, the rules of capitalism. They're put, they're going back against their own capitalist rules. However, let me, let me, let me throw something at you and get, 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 get a comment. There's something at the foundation of capitalism, which is imperialism. This brand of capitalism, the U.S. empire's brand of capitalism is we got to go to South America. We got to go to Africa. We got to go to Asia. We've got to steal these people's resources at a cheap rate or next to nothing. And that allows us to operate based on very inexpensive resources. That imperialism 
is in peril right now. So all the ideas of capitalism and democracy, all of those things, the, excuse me, maintaining the illusion of democracy, all of those things are out the window right now because they have Russia and China saying, uh-uh, you don't own everything. You're not the world's hegemon anymore. You're going to have to operate in a system where there are peer powers and there are, in fact, rules and you don't make them. That very foundational rules-based order, which is nothing but pure imperialism, is at stake. And I think that's what really makes them so dangerous and desperate, Margaret. Yeah, the, yeah, the word is uh, hegemony. And uh but everything the U.S. does to try to maintain hegemony backfires. Everything makes their situation more precarious. Their only option, the planet's only option, is for them to develop some way to peacefully coexist with other powers. But that's the weakness of imperialism of the U.S. Uh, you can't have dollar hegemony if there are other countries that can be economic rivals, if they start talking about uh, other currencies, all of these things make the whole um, the whole process uh, on shaky ground, and they see their only uh, their only out is to try to destroy other countries, to try to break up Russia to try to undo the Chinese revolution, all kinds of things that are just, for lack of a better word, crazy. Um, that is what they see as their only um, option. And that is what has created such a dangerous situation where they're constantly projecting that uh, Putin threatened use of nuclear weapons, which he did not do, by the way. But that's just to scare us. And to normalize the the prospect of nuclear war, um, so their desperation is uh, creating a situation that grows more and more dangerous every day. And going from Belgium to France, strikes halt French refineries. Protests triggered by spiraling inflation and pension reform could lead to fuel shortages. Strikes at French energy company Total Energies have dragged on for the seventh day, disrupting already strained energy supplies. And then going back to the Belgian story, Tony Bousselin, uh, one of the leaders of the unions, has says, we will be active in the neighborhoods and on the round roundabouts to pressure the government to act on the people's demands and by organizing collective resistance, we will inspire hope and convince the government to, to go our way. Uh, again, I, I, it's going to take some time, but the people aren't happy. And when, when you take the people not being happy and then they start getting hungry and they start getting cold, I think uh, Annalena Baerbach's imitation of Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. I don't think, I don't think that's going to last very long. You know, I, uh, I I think you're right, but uh, I have another concern that if the left doesn't step up, if there's not organized political action, that there will then the be right's going to step in and fill the vacuum. Exactly, nature abhors which, the vacuum, which the, as we've which seen they're in doing. Italy. Yes, yes, they are, and um, uh, so we have we're facing this very dangerous moment of. Uh, of uh, the right wing um, that will be on the rise, that will continue on the rise. But, you know, we're also talking about austerity. You mentioned uh, French pension reform. So all of these things were harming people beforehand. Remember the 
the yellow vest movement of a couple of years ago. We that was the beginning uh, before even before this crisis began. But uh, everything is being made worse by the United States, which quite, quite literally attacked its ally, Germany. And there's no other way to view the sabotage of that uh, uh, pipeline. But uh, political leadership in Germany, such as it is, has decided to let this happen. And uh, the results are going to be calamitous, uh, first of all, for people in these countries who are starting, just starting to suffer. We haven't even seen the full extent of it. Um, And also, let's talk about what the United States gets out of it. One of the reasons they want to stop uh, Europe's uh, energy connection with Russia is they want to force them to buy uh, fracked gas from the United States. You have some um, industries in Europe that are already preparing to move to the United States. So this hegemony, which is generally practiced on people in the global south and taking their stuff and making them stuff suffer, uh, now everybody's suffering. And it's, um, it's because of Washington and uh, its moves. Here's something else, Margaret. They get to do the um, uh, Pinochet move on Europe. They've hated, the neoliberals here have hated the fact that they have like national health services. They have, you know, they have a robust social safety net, right? They've got uh, free college and all these kinds of things, right? Which they've hated and they've hated to hear the people here in the U.S. point and say, how come the Europeans have it and we don't? This finally gives them the opportunity to wipe out Europe's social safety net once and for all and to impose dramatic neoliberal policies on the on the Europeans, although I think the Europeans are going to tear the darn place to pieces before they get a chance. But you get my point. Your thoughts on that, Margaret? Well, yes, that was, you know, that's one of the things that started with the fall of the Soviet Union. They got to, you know, there needed to be this counterpoint on the left uh, for the U.S. to um, the government and corporations uh, to have to live up to, for people to look and see this country that's supposed to be so terrible that, you know, provides for the needs of its people. But once that disappeared, they could say, well, socialism doesn't work. We're going to cut this. We're going to cut that. And that thing you over there that you thought you had, never mind. We're going to get rid of that, too. Um, and uh, so, yeah, obviously, that's also part of uh, of their plan. Uh, the question is, where is all this going to uh, lead? We know what they're trying to achieve. They will fail, ultimately. But in failing, they're creating a very, very dangerous uh, circumstance for millions of people. And to you, Margaret, in just your opinion, what does failure look like? How does failure manifest itself? Failure manifests itself with with a hot war. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. It's not even a cold. People talked about the new Cold War. There's an actual hot war, and it can spread. Um, the Russians have signaled they are not going to. Um, uh, they're not going to take this disrespect from the United States, these existential threats from the United States. They are. Uh, Putin has upped the ante first. Uh, the special military operation. Now it's just a regular war. They've mobilized thousands of more uh, troops, and uh, it's expected that there will be a greater uh, Russian offensive in the coming days and weeks. So we're looking, first of all, at a spreading hot war. 
Uh, European nations cannot, we see that they don't have much equipment. They don't have many soldiers. They've actually run out of equipment sending it to Ukraine, so they can't take on uh, uh, Russia militarily. Uh, the United States, uh, we're looking, look at what these people have done. They instigated the crisis in Ukraine in the first place. Then they attacked their ally. We're, and then we see these quote unquote experts on CNN saying, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, swear off a first nuclear strike. So we're looking at an existential threat to the entire world. And in these European countries, we're looking at the rise of the right, uh, although they might, might not see that as a failure. And uh, that the ultimate failure will be restive populations. Who and how they react is um, uh, very, very unpredictable. So we're going to see a lot of uh, suffering and then the ultimate act of suffering, which is war. Margaret Kimberly is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. Go to blackagendareport.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Russia's federal council has ratified the treaties on admission for the former eastern Ukrainian regions. Also, NATO has said that it is not obliged to assist Ukraine. And we discuss Russia's withdrawal from a little Liman. Joining us to discuss this matter and more, we have Mark Sloboda. Mark is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Sputnik International, uh, a outlet that we're uh, intricately familiar with, reports the Donetsk People's Republic, as well as the Lugansk People Repu People's Republic, Kherson region, and Zaporozhye region, overwhelmingly supported joining Russia during their September, September referendums. Zaporozhye, I don't know if I'm doing that right. But Mark, what's happening with all of that? Uh, give us an update. Yeah, Zaporozhye is pretty close. You got yeah, thanks. Uh, um, so um, I mean, the process of of uh, uh, incorporating these four um, republics, uh, the former uh, areas of Ukraine into the Russian Federation, uh, continues uh, onto its last legal steps. Um, first, there was the referendums, then signed treaties between uh, the leaders of these regions and uh, the Russian uh, government. Uh, and then the Constitutional Court ruled on the weekend over it. And then yesterday, the Russian Duma, the equivalent of the House, uh, the uh, U.S. Congress approved it unanimously. And today, the Federation Council, the Russian equivalent of the U.S. Senate, did as well. Uh, now, uh, the, the last step is actually the Russian president's final signature on it, although that may already be done. Uh, as far as we know, or will probably be done in the coming hours. And then it will be a legal reality for Russia. Um, but uh, reality on the ground may be a different thing. Um, and um, as part of the uh, ceremonies uh, and speeches about the joinings of uh, these regions with Russia, 
Uh, it was promised that they would be part of Russia forever. Uh, uh, Zaporozhye have become our citizens forever. Uh, and we now know after the events in Krasny Liman with the withdrawal of Russian forces uh, to prevent their encirclement by superior Kiev regime numbers, that forever lasts about a day and a half. One of the things that I find interesting in this story, it says the DPR and the LPR, Zaporozhye region and Kherson region, held referendums on September 23rd through the 27th, despite shelling by Ukraine and constant threat of attacks. The Western narrative is that all of this is illegal, all of this is improper, they also lead the impression or leave you with the impression that the referendums took place in Russia, not in the regions listed. So to your point that this is now all legal for Russia, we don't hear anything about the shelling that took place while this was going on in response to the referendums being held. But the United States narrative is, we're there defending democracy. Well, if these folks are holding elections and referendums to make political decisions, I think that's democracy. And Ukraine is shelling them to prevent it. Well, um, it is not a surprise that many Americans have not heard that uh, the uh, East Ukrainians, uh, you know, in these regions went uh, to vote in uh, extremely high numbers despite the threat of shelling. In fact, some of them were literally voting in basements uh, in Donetsk, which has been under continual fire. This doesn't surprise me because most Americans have not been told that the people of these regions in East Ukraine uh, have been being shelled for the last right, eight years right. of civil war in the country since the U.S.-backed putsch uh, overthrew the last legitimate democratically elected government in the country. And as far as Russia is concerned, they have held sham elections uh, under not just literal barrel of gun, but shelling of grad rocket launcher and Azov neo-Nazi Jack Boots since with parties lustrated and banned political repression of the political voices of East Ukraine, uh, their media taken off the air, millions disenfranchised, and, and it is those elections that have no legitimacy and have never had any legitimacy, at least not any further than the Nazi uh, Azov neo-Nazi jackboot that enforces it would go. Uh, so um, this is going to, of course, have to be settled on the battlefield. But, um, you know, in this conflict, there are Ukrainians on both sides of the conflict, something that the Western mainstream media will not directly acknowledge they simply dismiss and dehumanize the people here the people of these republics that voted to join russia as uh pro-russian separatists well there are tens of thousands of former ukrainians that want nothing to do with this regime that the u.s helped install uh, uh in their country and has been trying to basically mass murder them into subjugation to that seizure of power in Kiev ever since. And for instance, the situation in Krasny Liman, um, there was that situation. It's a village, a, a, 
I would not say, certainly it's not a critical area, uh, but it is a significant area, both uh, logistically and in terms of um, uh, opening up a, a path for further offensive if Kiev regime forces are still capable uh, towards the Lugansk border. Um, this town was defended by about 500 uh, people, most of them East Ukrainians. There were no regular Russian army there. There was a uh, Russian older reserve uh, age volunteer group, the BARS units, a couple of them were there, uh, but the majority of the defenders were either from Lugansk or Donetsk. There was about 500 of them, and they were facing well over 6,000 Kiev regime forces. They held them at bay for three weeks, um, maintained, uh, you know, uh, time or uh, saved time to build up defensive lines uh, further. And then the majority of them managed to get out in good order, um, maintaining their military force um, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, form these new defensive lines. Uh, leaving only uh, there were a few uh, killed in the holding rear guard action, uh, but this was a distinct minority. Um, and in doing so, even by the Kiev regime's uh, own uh, troops accounts, they were suffering five to ten to one casualties in doing so. Um, and, and that's, uh, of course, in lives. Uh, of, of, of casualties, both uh, injured and, and severely wounded, uh, but also a huge amount of equipment that cannot now easily be replaced that Western countries have provided, the Kiev regime basically already having exhausted the inventories of their first larger army. Uh, now, this is a trend uh, that I see continuing for about the next four to six weeks. We're seeing the same thing in Kherson in the Davidovprov area today. Uh, Russian forces, and, and we formerly would have called them allied Donbass forces, they are now Russian forces also, um, were local Russian forces. They um, are withdrawing. Um, they are basically fighting according to what you could identify as Mongol tactics with the superior um, artillery rocket systems and aviation they have uh, facing a far superior um, uh, manpower where they're outnumbered five to one to 10 to one to up to 15 to one, um, rather than engage the enemy directly and risk being enveloped, uh, they simply withdraw and fire again. And then when the enemy gets close, they withdraw and fire again. And this minimizes casualties on their side, maximizes casualties on the Kiev regime side, which it's quite willing to waste its cannon fodder. It has forcibly conscripted the, the entire rest of the country that it controls. Um, but uh, they're trading uh, space for this, and they're trading territory that the government in Moscow has officially recognized as Russian territory. Of course, according to Russian military, History, Russia has often traded its own territory temporarily uh, for defensive reasons, and this is, I presume, the logic being done here as well. In the meantime, the uh, Russia, the entire one million man strong Russian uh, active duty military is suddenly now available 
for being deployed in these four territories for defensive purposes. That was the legalistic person, uh, uh, reason for all of this, or for a good part of it. Um, and the 300,000 reservists, uh, it will take them a month or two to finish up training, uh, but they will then be available for offensive purposes. And we're going to see a whole new war in about four to six weeks, a much more real war rather than a self-limited special military operation, but it may be a humiliating uh, four to six weeks until all of that can be marshaled uh, into the theater. So that, that's what I was going to ask you um, for this reason, Mark, and here's what I was thinking. <clears throat> One of the things that we've been hearing for a while is the Russian Air Force, where's the Russian Air Force? They've been using, you know, minimal, it seems to me, minimal air power on this. So they've been using a lot of, uh, you know, standoff west weapons and missiles and things of that nature. I would expect some kind of immediate difference in, hey, now it's uh, the, the now, in, in fact, I almost kind of think I'm not using the word PR, but from the perspective of this is our land, there has to be something. Do you think, do you expect Either aerial or they do expect something different in the immediacy or do you expect the Russians, as the Russians will do, to just plot ahead and do get everything ready on schedule, you know, the kind of bureaucratic Russian way. And then when they're prepared, make their move. Your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so the Russian has uh, Air Force, right, uh, the, the parts assigned to the battalion tactic groups. So they have been. Uh, quite busy in close air support, which has contributed to the the high uh, kill ratio uh, compared to Russian uh, to Ukrainian troops. And they were very busy uh, in the defense of Krasny Laman as well for those three weeks. But Russia has not used a lot of its uh, more longer range standoff like its plentiful supply of bombers and fighter bombers capable of doing this. They have largely sat out this conflict um, in part because of the desire to minimize civilian casualties uh, to uh, the minimum that, you know, the collateral damage that is inevitable in war. But um, we've already seen a few trials in the last couple of weeks of strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure. Up until now in this conflict, Russia has largely refrained from striking infrastructure in Ukraine because by their view, they weren't at view with Ukraine or war with Ukraine. They were just combating the regime that had seized power uh, in the country with Western help in 2014 and trying to force political terms on it that they avoided through denying the political reconciliation of the Minsk Accords. Uh, but, you know, the the Internet stayed on, the uh, electricity uh, worked, uh, the, the water ran and so forth, quite unlike uh, the usual U.S. heavy shock and awe entry like into Iraq when uh, such infrastructure targets were one of the first things hit so that those resources were not available to continue the military effort of resistance. Uh, we've seen a few strikes against electrical sites in the past couple of weeks. I expect this to escalate massively in the coming next two to three weeks. Um, uh, the Kiev regime has been, their chatter uh, uh, has been quite nervously about some supposed 700 Russian aircraft, according to Kiev sources that have been gathered around their territory. And that sounds like something significant to me. Uh, so let's take a look at uh, in Ukraine, 
the trains, uh, as in, in Russia, trains, because of the large expanses of territory involved, trains are what is mostly involved to get vehicles um, and people around from place to face. It's much, much more efficient than roads. Uh, but the trains run on electricity. And if Russia starts taking out uh, the uh, electrical infrastructure uh, of Ukraine that will inhibit the Kiev regime's military from maneuvering around being able to uh, throw these fast-moving human wave attacks uh, and thus helping to nullify what has previously been an advantage in manpower. Uh, but that advantage is very soon going to come to a end and be reversed. NATO now says... Uh, Berlin's envoy to the military bloc, NATO, clarifies that NATO won't actively fight for a non-member state. Germany's permanent representative has explained that the U.S.-led bloc is not obliged to offer direct military assistance to Ukraine. Is that a significant admission and a signal about what some allies now may be thinking? Yeah. Um, so, uh, first of all, if... German money and German weapons and German training and German intelligence are going towards killing Russian troops, then whatever fig leaf of proxy remove they may claim, Germany is at war with Russia, whether they like to admit that or not. Um, secondly, there certainly may be politicians, some politicians in Germany, certainly not the ones principally in power, uh, that would be against direct military, uh, NATO military intervention. And there are other NATO members as well. But there are other NATO members uh, who are very eager to step into that, looking at you, Poland and the United States, the UK. Um, and uh, I am not ruling a I, I'm certainly not ruling out at some later point in this conflict. Let's say the tide now changes with the new terms of engagement and the, the uh, reinforcements Russia is going to be bring to bear. And let's say in a year and a half to two years, Kiev is threatened. Uh, threatened to fall. Would, say, U.S. and Poland act independently of the rest of NATO and send troops into western Ukraine in a kind of, um, uh, you know, um, let's say safe zone or defensive measure? Yes, I think that is extremely very much on the table thus far, uh, whatever uh, uh, the Germans may feel about it. Uh, so um, there is every possibility of escalation of direct military involvement of at least some NATO members moving forward. Well, Germany's already been attacked by the United States. Mark, did you know <laughs> that Anthony J. Blinken in 1987 wrote a book called Ally versus Ally, America, Europe and the Siberian Pipeline Crisis? And that it's about um, um, examines U.S. relations with the member nations of NATO, explains U.S. opposition to the Siberian Pipeline Project, and assesses European willingness to ignore U.S. objections. I think we know what plan they came up with, Mark. We got uh, two minutes. Yeah, I did not know that, but I'm certainly going to be uh, checking on it now, and it's certainly no surprise. Um, and, you know, uh, th this... 
administration that Anthony Blinken is a leading figure in has said repeatedly that Nord Stream will cease to exist. It will cease to operate. It's not in the interests of the Germans, no matter what they may say. And they have now, you know, uh, removed that option uh, from uh, German energy security, whether the Germans uh, like it or not. And the fact that Anthony Blinken has been thinking along these lines for decades now comes as no surprise to me. Thank you very much, Mark. We've been talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A highly respected U.S. intellectual was almost shut down as he told the truth about the Nord Stream attacks. Also, the neocon project in Ukraine is spinning out of control. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dan Lazar. Dan's an investigative journalist and author of a number of books, including America's Undeclared War. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Economist Jeffrey Sachs speculated on Monday that the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines was the work of the U.S. and maybe Poland to the chagrin of Bloomberg TV hosts who quickly tried to change the subject. You know, Dan, what was interesting, and I like to do this, I watched that segment with the sound off. When I looked at the host, you could see anger at both. There was a male and a female. They were both angry at Jeffrey Sachs for uh, bringing a little bit of reality into the into the segment. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Well, I, I think it's extremely important. I mean, uh, I mean, essentially what we've heard for the last nine days since the explosion, or I guess seven days, um, has been just like, you know, an endless parroting of the, uh, of the U.S., official U.S. line. Russia did it. Russia is guilty. You know, Russia is putting out this information. Russia, Russia, Russia. And this is the first crack in the wall, the first per- person of any kind of stature who has pointed out that, who has suggested that a, a public opinion, you know, across the world is not nearly as unanimous as the U.S. says it is. And this is of inestimable importance, because if what, if what um, Sachs is saying is true, if the U.S. really did it, then the implications for Europe, NATO, the war effort and in, in the Ukraine in general are just profound. I mean, first of all, if it's true, uh, I mean, Nord Stream, the explosion was directed at, at as much at Germany as it was at Russia. Because as you may be aware, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has been balking at supplying uh, Ukraine with uh, German-made leopard tanks, which the Ukrainians very much want and which the U.S. wants them to supply. But Schultz, for fear of getting in more and more deeply involved in a war that he is clearly not enthusiastic about, has been saying no. So is the, was this an attempt to intimidate uh, Schultz? Was it a shot across his bow? 
letting him know that the time for compromise has passed and that deviations from the orders of the day will no longer be tolerated. Because remember, the, 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 the destruction of the pipeline hurts Germany as much as it hurts Russia. So if that's the case, that means that the U.S. is, a, is applying heavy muscle to Germany. And Germany has recently seen protests in two dozen cities in which demonstrators, you know, held up banners calling for an end to the anti-Russian sanctions and for reactivation of Nord Stream. So the U.S. has essentially put the kibosh on that. But how will those protesters react? knowing that U.S. guns are essentially pointed their way as well. Then I, I have to push back a little bit and take exception to your point that Jeffrey Sachs is the first person of note because Garland Nixon and I have been uh, saying this for quite a while. So let, I, I just have to push back on that. With that, I having, agree with that. that way, that's, that's true. But Sachs is the big shot. I mean, he's, well, he's a real big shot. He's, he's the guy who applied economic shock and awe to Russia, uh, you know, under Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Uh, he heads up some kind of enormous institute at Columbia University called the Earth uh, Institute. Um, right. And he has recently uh, reinvented himself as a sharp critic of U.S. foreign policy. So the guy is extremely well plugged in and mm -hmm. he seems to know whereof he speaks. He's not a bigger he's not a bigger shot than Garland Nixon. So absolutely not. Of course but, but here, but here, here's my point. Here's my point. Not only and and, and thank you in all seriousness. Thank you for saying what you just said about him, because that coupled with what he said, I mean, he provides evidence. He says, well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk, were circling over the area. We also had the threats. I mean, so he lays out, not only does he just say it and make it speculation, he's starting to provide data points, which coupled with his background is uh, makes his position even more, even more reliable, more credible. And, and then he says, I know this runs counter to our narrative, you're not allowed to say these things in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the U.S. did it. Well, you know, Dan, let me throw something else at you, Dan, that you may not have known. In 1987, Anthony Blinken wrote a book. The book was called Ally versus Ally. America, Europe, and the Siberian Pipeline Crisis examines U.S. relations with member nations of NATO, explains why, excuse me, explains U.S. opposition to the Siberian Pipeline Project and assesses European willingness to ignore U.S. objections. So what we have now is Tony Blinken's very book, which I've ordered because I got to read this, coming to fruition. And it's clear. Here's the thing about it. We're saying to the Germans and the EU, you better watch it because the Russians are going to attack you and we've got to protect you from the Russians. When reality, we've attacked them. 
And the Russians are the only ones that can bail them out. Well, I didn't even know if they can bail them out anymore. That could actually bail them out with 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 uh, with um, with gas. We have literally after saying Trump is screwing everything up with our allies. We have literally attacked the infrastructure, have has have done an act of war against Germany. Dan Lazar. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, since World War Two. Uh, establishing an effective U.S. monopoly over global energy sl- uh, supplies has been a top priority. Um, 10% of the Marshall Plan uh, uh, of the, uh, was used so that Europe could purchase Saudi oil, which the U.S. at the time effectively controlled. They even built a pipeline from Saudi Arabia to the eastern Mediterranean to get the oil to Europe more cheaply. And, there, and the reason was was fourfold. It was, number one, to block Soviet oil exports. Um, number two, it was to, um, to make money for U.S. oil producers. Number three, it was to secure the Saudis' position as the prime uh, global exporter. And number four, it was also to, to, uh, to sideline coal fields in, um, in Britain, France, and Germany that were communist union strongholds. So the U.S. has been intent for a whole variety of political and economic reasons of establishing a monopoly on on energy. Um, I mean, how many bombs has the U.S. dropped over the Persian Gulf region in order to establish its, its, its monopoly there? So given all that, is it really Hard to imagine the U.S. would then explode an underwater bomb uh, in the um, in the Western Baltic in order to establish its monopoly in that part of the world. Also, I mean, Putin wanted to establish an independent energy delivery system, and that is a direct challenge to the Biden uh, Blinken rules based order. So they bombed it. If that's what seems quite clear to me. Do you and I, this is I, I know you I know you don't have a crystal ball and in, in this is I'm just asking your opinion here. So understanding this to be an act of war, not only a direct act against Russia, but in a, a direct attack on the economy of Europe. What kind of fallout do you see on the horizon for the United States, particularly with its allies? I, I I foresee immense fallout. I mean, if 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 this if this theory proves correct, if proof does surface of U.S. involvement, I think the fallout will be immense. I mean, essentially, Germany has got to ask itself: you know, whose side is America on? Is it on Germany's side? Is it on the Ukraine's side? Or is it on its own side? In other words, is it willing to sacrifice other nations' interests for its own? And 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 really, and if the facts do come out, as I think they will, Germany, you know, the answer to that question will be clear. I mean, Germany will have to do something to to remove this American threat. Well, you know, Dan, the other part of it is this. There's two things going on here, right? There is the narrative that says Russia's out to get you, Germany, and they want to destroy you. Then there's the reality 
that the U.S. is out to get him and they want to destroy him. And Germany is now trapped between the two narratives, at least the leaders of Germany are, because if the if and when the evidence comes out and it becomes very, very clear what happened, and I've seen polls that say most Germans already are pretty clear on what happened, then the German leaders are, are facing their people saying, We've been attacked by these people. They ain't our friends. Of course, the German leaders are total vassals. They just want to say, ah, shut up. Let's just go along with it. But now they got to face reality. And I think it's going to be interesting to see them trapped between a narrative that Russia is their enemy and the U.S. is their friends and the data and evidence that says they've been attacked by the U.S. Look at how all of this, look at how they tried to set us up. Going all the way back to the election. If you go back to 2020 and when we were expecting Nord Stream 2 to be turned up, we were told it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We don't want Russia to use energy as a weapon. We don't want Germany. We don't want Russia to use energy as leverage, as a political. All of that narrative around why it wouldn't get turned up because Russia was going to be the bad guy. And now what is become very, very evident, what we've all known for a very long time, it wasn't them, it was us. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Anthony Blinken said it was a wonderful opportunity that the Nord Stream bombing was a wonderful opportunity to see to it that, that, uh, that, that Putin is unable to weaponize energy so as to pursue his, quote, imperial designs. But all it means is that now the U.S. can weaponize energy to pursue its imperial designs. I, I mean, I mean, yes, I mean, Ch- I mean, Germany is in the hot seat. Uh, actually, no, the mean, cold Schultz, seat. The, yeah, actually, the Schultz, cold seat. Schultz, you know, has, you know, this, you know, you know, uh, go- you know, is governing as a partner of the U.S. He insists that, you know, that that, that American promises should be taken in, in, uh, uh, in good faith. Uh, he says that America is a loyal ally. And if this proves true, then it shows that he has been completely and woefully wrong about these all important questions. And if that's true, that means his government falls. And I think that what will replace it is a more nationalist right wing government with the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland. Uh, uh, you know, as part of the government, and that is going to lead to, to to more political horrors. So essentially, I mean, the U.S. is pulling the rug out from under European democracy. If once again, if all this proves correct, and here's the other thing you got to add, and that is. It would be one thing if the German people just said, you know, we've been deceived and that's terrible and we're angry, right? But they're going to be suffering terribly. They're going to be at a situation where they held up signs that said, hey, open Nord Stream, basically, because we don't want to suffer. They're going to wake up and they're going to be, their jobs are going to be gone. Their heat's going to be gone. They're going to be out of money, out of time, out of jobs and out of patience. And then they're going to look at it and say, and these sons of a gun did it to us. It's going, I think it's going to elicit fury in the midst of the winter when they're suffering. And it's like, nobody, this didn't have to happen. And they did it on purpose. Dan. 
look, it's like, you know, it's like seeing your, your wife or your husband, whatever the case may be, you know, go off, you know, run off with someone, you know, half your age, <laughs> leaving you with a parcel of kids to take care of. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be, you're going to be mighty upset, right? <laughs> so I think in this case, this, the sentiments will be similar. I mean, it'll turn out that the people who, who destroyed the pipeline and left Germany to freeze in the dark was not Russia. It was the U.S., its so-called friend. If this is not a stab in the back, what is? There's a great piece by Jeffrey Sachs in the uh, L.A. Progressive. Great game in Ukraine is spinning out of control. Today's fraught situation can easily spin out of control as the world has done on so many past occasions, yet this time with the possibility of nuclear catastrophe. Uh, your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Yeah, I mean, Sachs is, I mean, is an interesting guy. So he's a guy who started out as a, as, as a, as a, a, a free market economist who, you know, who, you know, who helped put Russia through the ringer, an ultra-establishmentarian, very, very prominent, you know, uh, has a super duper job at Columbia University, uh, et cetera. But he has is, he is reinvented himself as a, as a very sharp and stern critic of U.S. foreign policy. I'm not, I'm not really quite sure where it came from. It's been, but it's been very interesting. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, he's absolutely correct that the, uh, that the, that thing that, that the war in Ukraine is escalating. That's what wars do. Wars just don't die down of their own. I mean, when, when people kill people, they get very angry and kill more people. Um, and so, so therefore, you know, we're seeing a, an intensification of the war very likely a spreading of the war. Russia is engaging in a major military mobilization. Uh, the Ukraine's advancing for, you know, at the moment, but Russia's is going to be shortly pouring in resources uh, into the into the into the fight, and therefore the battle will probably expand. And whether Russia you know, the outcome, you know, is unclear. I I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know whether Russia will prevail or not. But the battle is certain to expand. And and Russia has in Russia has 5000 nuclear warheads in its arsenal. Uh, and clearly if Russia believes it is facing an existential threat, in other words a threat to its very existence, um, it could quite conceivably, you know, resort to this ultimate weapon. So yeah, I mean, yeah, this is the, the world things are getting things are getting very hairy out there. And uh, and I think that there is every reason to be concerned about where this whole thing is going and whether the Biden administration, you know, has an ounce of sanity left as to what it's doing out there. Dan, we got about a minute left. Here's my thought. And I, here's what I one of the things I think is a possibility. The coalition collapses based on things like uh, Germany, based on the winner that ultimately the, the coalition that the U.S. has, it's a forced coalition, starts to fall apart to the point where they can't imagine it, manage it, it anymore. We got one minute. Well, that, 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 that's that's certainly possible. And 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 a and, and a. Revelation concerning U.S. involvement in Nord Street bombing would would be itself be a bombshell that could that would tear this whole alliance apart. But we're talking about the destruction of NATO. I mean, NATO is a is a foundational organization that is essentially has given shape to modern Europe. So if that falls apart, Europe in a political sense falls apart as well, and then we're back in 1914. 
You know, where where half of half of Europe wages war to the death against the other half of Europe and 10 million people die. It's not a good thing. I think the big difference now is the economic situation is different. I think the economic situation is far different, and it's going to be harder for leaders to persecute a war when the people are laying on their backs starving and freezing to death. You know, come on, time to go fight someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the, the there's going. To, I, I just think there's a difference because the there will be a massive revolt against leadership to the point where I don't think they'll be able to drag their populace into a war or anything else. In fact, they'll be running for their lives from their population rather than leading them into a war. At any rate, well, well, wait a minute. The other other thing is there are two very substantial elements of opposition to American hegemony, Russia and China, and they're backed by a whole bunch of others. And the balance of power is different as well. We've been talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author of America's Undeclared War. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, there's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. North Korea has fired a missile over Japan. Also, Senate hawks pushed to get an aggressive bill through Congress that would obliterate the one China policy and China shows off its newest nuclear submarine. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist, a writer and a teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Japan warned its citizens to take shelter as it estimated the flight path of a North Korean missile as a North Korean missile went over its territory. Pyongyang has carried out a series of missile tests during the past week. You know, the thing about this, I got to say, is we do literally decapitation strikes simulating attacks on North Korea, including killing everyone in charge. And then we wonder why they throw an elbow every now and then uh, back. Your thoughts, KJ? You're absolutely correct. And we just finished, you know, the South Korean U.S. military exercises, which are huge in scope and scale. And they do actually rehearse uh, the decapitation and occupation of North Korea. So they're absolutely within their rights to feel that they are being, you know, uh, threatened and intimidated. This specific uh, missile launch, uh, you know, if you read any uh, if you read any mainstream media, you'll see that there's no context to it. That They're just essentially acting out or unhappy with Kamala Harris's visit or whatever, you know, whatever. But uh, I think that this is probably related to the military exercise which is happening in North Japan. The missile overflew uh, Hokkaido Island uh, in northern Japan. It was a Pasong 12, which flew about... Uh, you know, 22 minutes, and it has a range of 4,500 kilometers. But it was probably directly related to the uh, Resolute Dragon 22 exercise, which has about 5,500 personnel, both U.S. and Japanese Marines uh, collaborating on, you know, uh, military exercises, along with Korean Marines, 
uh, and also uh, using, uh, you know, standoff uh, environments in a distributed, standoff weapons in a distributed environment. So very, very belligerent exercises. These may be related to the current exercises that are happening right now in Hokkaido, which is why they were launched in the direction of Hokkaido. What do you think about this method of sending messages? Because to Garland's point, you have the U.S. engaged in decapitation exercises. You've got Biden and South Korean President Yoon signing agreements to increase military ties. So you've got the United States carrying out these war games. And so North Korea says, eh, I want you guys to know I'm still here and I got missiles too. In fact, that's the same thing that very similar to what President Putin said in his speech two weeks ago when now the United States wants to uh, accuse him of threatening to use missiles. But he said, no, you guys basically injected this dialogue into the discussion I'm letting you know I have it as well. So what do you think about this as a methodology of sending messages? Well, you know, it's a terrible methodology. You know, no two parties should be reduced to firing missiles in order to communicate with each other. But the simple fact is that the U.S. refuses to normalize diplomatic relations with North Korea. And so there is no official channel this is about as good as it gets. You know, for a while there, there was a New York channel uh, at the UN, which was kind of an indirect channel, but that seems to have petered out. And so it really is, you know, kind of, a, uh, you know, a very kind of uh, inefficient and risky method of messaging. But this has been the case for, you know, decades. Uh, uh, just another quick example is, you know, South Korea banned the word labor from the South Korean vocabulary, and the North Koreans decided to label all their missiles with the word labor. That is the word <laughs> nodong. So until recently, most North Korean missiles were called labor something, you know. So this is the level of uh, failure, breakdown of communication between North and South and the United States. But the the simple fact is that um, here in this specific situation, the last time North Korea fired anything over Japan was in 2017, and that was uh, in the direction of Guam. And that was a very specific message to the United States that, yes, we have missiles. Not only do we have missiles, we have missiles that can take out the major uh, military base in the Pacific. So there, there's very, very specific messaging going on. And, you know, this round of missiles, you know, they were I think people were quite scared in Japan, in Hokkaido Island and uh, Aomori City. Uh, you know, um, citizens were evacuating. They stopped the subways and suspended the trains. And I imagine quite a few Marines who were involved in Dragon 22 may have been spilling their Sapporo beers. Um, let me let me also take the propaganda angle for a second. So USA reports today reports North Korea fired ballistic missile over Japan. Officials say U.S. condemns the launch as dangerous and reckless. You know, and then they go on to talk about, oh, they've been firing missiles. Oh, this is terrible. Here's another article. Minuteman 3 ICBM test launch shows showcases readiness of U.S. nuclear 
deterrent. So the only country that has used nukes against a civilian, uh, anyone, but against, directly against a civilian population, slaughtered people by, I don't know, you know, the, uh, the tens of thousands in those two actions, now has 80, 850 bases surrounding the globe, is menacing China, North Korea, Russia at the same time. They're showcasing their readiness and their nuclear deterrent when we fire an ICBM. But when North Korea does the exact same thing that we're doing as a result of our provocations, they're just a madman who we, the world must fear. Your thoughts? You're absolutely correct. Yes. Isn't it strange, this double standard, when the U.S. fires missiles that are, you know, lethal, that are uh, strategic weapons? It's just about readiness and deterrence. And, you know, the assumption is that, you know, we're just, you know, we're harmless. We're just trying to defend ourselves. Whereas when North Korea, which has actually faced uh, existential annihilation from the, from the United States, uh, first from 1950 to 1953, but from 1958 onwards, when in nuclear weapons were placed on the peninsula, uh, and at this point, we, we know that there are still missiles aimed at North Korea from, you know, outside of theater, that when they do something, you know, which could be considered a deterrent action, that is considered beyond the pale, insane, and a sign of their belligerence and uh, threatening, you know, the global uh, order. You know, it's the, the hypocrisy is off the charts. What about the statement by the Japanese Ministry of Defense? They said earlier, well, you know, we could have shot the missile down, but we just decided not to. Um, I think it's highly unlikely. You know, it was a lofted trajectory. It was uh, moving through the exosphere. Uh, it was moving very, very fast. I doubt that it could have been shot down. Uh, I think this is just posturing. Uh, but it also points to the fact that, you know, the missile just uh, crossed over uh, north, uh, northern Japan. You know, it was not directly a threat, although the sirens did go off and I'm sure that the Japanese want to use it for all their propaganda purposes. They'll milk it, uh, you know, right down to the very last drop. Asia Times reports for the first time China has released video footage of its Type 094A nuclear-powered ballistic missile sub and a Type 093 nuclear attack sub, a potent show of naval might ahead of China's 20th Communist Party Congress in October. I also think that all the U.S. talk recently of nuclear this and that and, oh, we'll respond and we'll use nukes against, uh, we should consider nukes against Russia. I also think that China understands that the United States has Russia in their short sights, but their main sights are set on China. And I think that the actions China are taking also is to remind the United States that basically I do believe that this is deterrent, that China doesn't want war, but it's a reminder we're strong enough. Don't mess with us. Your thoughts? You're absolutely correct. Once again, more deterrent messaging. Uh, we know that the United States uh, has shifted to what is called the third offset. This is the doctrine of war that involves subsurface warfare, especially in the littoral waters around China, in the South China Sea, and around Taiwan. So the third offset involves subsurface warfare, involves dispersion, it involves autonomous warfare, it involves long-range standoff missiles. So the Chinese are sending the message that you know we can do subsurface warfare, we can do standoff warfare through uh, submarines. Uh, and we also have uh, autonomous capacity. I think just recently they unveiled 
some autonomous submarines, as well as a transmedia drone sub that is a flying submarine. So they're saying, please don't mess with us. You know, we are, uh, you know, we are, uh, we are not uh, fools and we are not behind you by any sense, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Former uh, Secretary of State Pompeo says the U.S. must abandon the old paradigm of blind engagement in its relations with Beijing if it wants to prevent Xi Jinping's dream of a Chinese century. I think Mike Pompeo might be a little late to that party, but your thoughts, KJ, no. Well, the first thing I'll point out is, yes, certainly, um, you know, uh, uh, Pompeo is is behind the times. He is, you know, somebody who came out of the Tea Party uh, and then has been, you know, uh, really undermining diplomacy or even the concept of diplomacy for the United States around the world. But the first thing is the Chinese never talk about a Chinese century. They want a win-win uh, a world that is multilateral, that does not have uh, hegemonism, uh, that doesn't believe in unilateral uh, you know, power, and they want somewhere where everybody can develop uh, mutually. If you want to call that a Chinese century, consider that a threat, you're welcome to do so, but I think the majority of the world welcomes a world where that is possible. Really quickly, it's interesting the United States keeps projecting these ideas and these thoughts that you never hear the people that they're accusing of them say. You just said Xi never talks about a Chinese century. I don't. Uh, I don't know that President Putin ever talked about reuniting the Soviet Union as the United, or that China wants to invade Taiwan. The United States keeps creating this rhetoric as though it's fact. Absolutely. Yes, it's these these uh, ideas are completely projection. The U.S. propaganda constructs they have no basis in reality. But if you're, you know, setting foreign policy on the basis of that, that is extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, the simple fact is Pompeo tried to end the one China policy. He actually declared the era of engagement was over and he did it at the Nixon library deliberately to kind of you know, punctuate that. But the simple fact is, you know, the U.S. official policy, and still the official policy, is that there's only one China. The PRC is the government of this one China. Taiwan Island is a province of China. Uh, and what this does is it assures China that it will have territorial integrity, sovereignty, and non-interference in China's internal affairs. By throwing all of this up through the uh, into the blender, you know, the U.S. is creating a very, very dangerous situation. We've been talking with K.J. No, He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. 
A close relationship between Israeli intelligence and Hollywood has created a new Marvel superhero that is a Mossad agent. Also, Liz Truss admits that she is a, quote, huge Zionist and supporter of Israel, and U.S. sanctions against Syria are causing disease and poverty. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Robert Fantina. He's an author, he's a journalist, and a Palestine activist. Robert, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Marvel Studios announced that little-known Israeli superheroine Sabra will join the next installment of its Captain America movie series. The character, Israeli police officer by day, super-powered Mossad agent by night, is a quintessential reflection of the Israeli apartheid system. Robert Fantina, your thoughts? Yes, this is once again trying to normalize the occupation, trying to see Israelis uh, and Israeli soldiers and the Israeli military as uh, a force for good. Superheroes, we're saying, uh, and of course, superheroes, Superman, all the others, they, uh, they're like Robin Hood figures, right? They rob from the rich and get to the poor. They're there for the, the benefit of the people. And that's what is being portrayed or is going to be portrayed in this Marvel movie. It is a complete lie, a complete myth. And yet the Marvel uh, industry is perpetuating it. What I think is interesting and positive is activists and comic book fans alike are in an uproar over this. So this could actually wind up uh, backfiring. Uh, The second paragraph says, by glorifying the Israeli army and police, Marvel is promoting Israel's violence against Palestinians and enabling the continued oppression of millions of Palestinians living under Israel's authoritarian military rule. This is from the Institute for Middle East understanding. But I think it's also important to inject into that the role that the Israeli police have played in oppressing Americans in urban centers as well. So it's not just the Zionist government oppressing Palestinians. The United States has turned to the Israeli police for tactical support and uh, training in terms of oppressing people of color in, uh, in, in, in urban centers in the United States. Yes, a, a very good point. Uh, many, many U.S. police departments in major cities have had training from the Israeli police force, which is why we see an increase in violence against uh, people of color by the U.S. police force. Of course, racism is endemic in, throughout the U.S. system, but the police force is, with this training, uh, perpetrates this violence, this repression uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And it's, it's at least significantly in part because they've been trained to do so by the brutal Israeli police. We see everyday examples of uh, Israeli police brutalization of Palestinian men, women, and children arrested, beaten, killed uh, with, with no, they've, they've committed no crimes, they've done no wrong, they're it's the same as the killing of many uh, people, many many uh, black citizens in the United States. There's uh, uh, people are arrested and killed for driving while black, walking while black, being in their own homes while black. We see this all the time. It's it's it parallels what's happening in Israel, and the reason for that is because the training that the U.S. police force receives from the Israeli police force. You know, Robert, also looking at this, uh, you know, Hollywood has essentially become part of the um, uh, uh, part of the whole 
uh, a mechanism of propaganda for the U.S. And I mean, first of all, her name's Sabra. There was a massacre there. But the, it, 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 even then, I, there was a movie, a movie that I like with Brad Pitt. I love my zombie movies called World War Z. But in World War Z, Israel as, is portrayed as this wise country. They were the, one of the few countries in the world that figured out how to d- deal with the zombies. But what they did was they then, out of their own you know, altruistic nature, allowed all of these Arabs to come in. All these Arabs, there's zombies out there. We're Israel. We're the good guys. All the Arabs could come in. But once the Arabs would, could, came in, they sang too loud, attracted the zombies, and everybody got eaten. So even in the movie— they allowed nicely and altruistically the Arabs to come in, but the stupid old Arabs sang their songs too loud and got everybody killed. And when you look at that, it's like like we can't really see what's going on here. Robert. Right. It's all, it's all propaganda. It's all Zionist-based uh, Zionist and in order to, uh, to protect and project Zionism and make it acceptable. Zionism is a racist theory. It was only declared not racist in the 70s by the United Nations due to uh, influence and pressure by the United States. But we see that the Israelis are the people who are civilized, and they're the ones who uh, are advanced and intelligent. And the Arabs are uh, living in tents and, and riding around on camels, whatever, whatever stereotype it might be. This is all racist. It's all uh, it, it's horrible. It's propaganda. But the public does tend to eat it up unless they look a little more deeply. And much of the public, especially the U.S. public, I have to say, does not look any more deeply. They see a, a flashy movie with attractive stars doing superhero-type things, and they're going to make that transformation from the movie to reality and say, oh, this is what Israelis are like. And it's exactly the purpose of propaganda. It has been very successful. Um, we'll see how it goes from here. And for people to really get a grasp of uh, how insidious all of this is, you've got to go all the way back to uh, Edward Bernays, known as the uh, father of propaganda in the United States, and how he understood the power of using the news and the power of using Hollywood in order to convince Americans to engage in activities and actions that were really counter to their best interests. So what we're seeing here in this in this latest Marvel event is just another chapter in a very very thick book of propaganda in the United States. My only but my and my the crux of my point is how far this goes all the way back to 1923 and his book crystallizing public opinion. Uh, it, goes, it goes back farther than that. Um, in my own book, Propaganda Lies and False Flags, I talk about how propaganda has been used uh, for centuries in the United States. Uh, going back, not quite that far, but to World War II, there were, children were encouraged to do certain chores and, and activities that would be considered slave labor. It was illegal for them to do it, but in order to support the war cause, they were, they were to do it. Uh, Hollywood, if you look at Hollywood movies from that period, uh, it glorifies uh, the U.S., it glorifies uh, the military, it glorifies soldiers and their actions, and the more uh, kills a, a soldier has, the greater he or she, well, usually he in those days, he is. This is all 
propaganda, and, and we're seeing it today in Hollywood as, as much as, as ever since, since Hollywood's been a movie-making capital, uh, that the U.S. government uses Hollywood to uh, promote its own geopolitical goals and get the United States populace behind whatever it wants to do, regardless of how brutal, illegal, and how damaging, not only to the victim nations, but to the people of the United States, it may be. Uh, Dan, let me throw two things at you. Number, I mean, uh, sorry about that, Robert. Number one, Isaac Perlmutter, the uh, muter, the current chairman of Marvel uh, Entertainment, served in the Israeli army. A.B. Avrod, the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, served in the Israeli army. So it's led by, uh, no doubt, Zionists. But here's the interesting thing. I'm going to criticize this article. The article goes on to do the kind of the, the liberal thing that you got to do. They're linked to Trump. They gave money to Trump. They, you know, so it's like somehow this is a Trump thing. The Palestinians have not fared any better under Biden than they have under Trump. So the idea that because that somehow this is a Trump thing, Trump ain't even in office anymore. So a lot of the liberals got of everything they don't like. They have to tie to Trump. But when you look at the plight of the Palestinians, it has nothing to do with Trump because nothing has changed for them for the better. That's for sure. Robert. It has gotten worse. And uh Biden says he's going to reopen uh, an office in Jerusalem that will be uh, like a consulate. And Israel says no, so, so the United States hasn't done it. Uh, the United States, for whatever reason, uh, bows to is- Israeli desires. But, Gon, get back to your point. Yes, this article is about uh, Marvel and Israeli propaganda, and yet Trump is brought in. I think the reason it justifies it is because Trump was such a Zionist. He did whatever. He went out of his way. He he said the U.S. would recognize the Golan Heights as part of uh, as part of Israel. He said that he came up with this disastrous uh, 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 peace plan that that was just gave Israel everything it could possibly dream of and gave Palestine nothing. So I think the the reason that he's mentioned in here so strongly is to link him to anti-Palestinian activities. But I agree with your point. Everything that's bad may have to do with Trump, but you don't have to bring it all in all the time. There's a, another related piece, Liz Truss, Prime Minister of Britain. I'm a huge Zionist and huge supporter of Israel. She's joined a, new, uh, a numerous cabinet ministers who all spoke at the Conservative Friends of Israel event at the Tory party's annual conference in Birmingham. Well, this, this article was just really sickening. Uh, one of the things, one of the quotations, it was by former Secretary, or Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, and he said this. I, I can barely say these words. Israel has been a beacon of democracy, liberalism, openness, tolerance in a part of the world where that has not been the history. Close quote. Now, now, it's not a democracy. It's not liberal. It's not open. It's not tolerant. It's, it is the antithesis of all those things. And yet he stood there in front of these, this conservative Jewish group and, and told these lies. How, how anyone can believe these things is beyond me. How anyone can speak those words is beyond me. Some may support Israel, but to say that it's a beacon of democracy, liberalism, openness, and tolerance, it just means they know nothing 
nothing about Israel. I'll, I'll, I'll go in a different directly, uh, direction. I think they know everything about Israel. This is a narrative. This is like when so, this is like, hey, Russia blew up their own pipeline. They know they everybody knows that Blinken and company blew the crap out of that pipeline. But the narrative is. Israel's a great, wonderful democracy. Palestinians don't even exist. Even exist. I, I think it's a, there's no such thing as Palestinians. That's just a, uh, a QAnon conspiracy theorist. This is, it isn't about whether it's true or false. This is, this is the narrative. And if we tell the truth about what Israel's doing to the Palestinians, we can't possibly face the world. So they have no choice but to lie, Dan. Uh, uh, Rob. Why do I keep calling you Dan? Robert. Really quick, Robert, before I want to pick up on a point that Garland just made. Garland, it's not that Palestinians don't exist. Is Israelis are taught in school that they're not human. They're taught in school that they are animals. It's the same racist tropes that American children were taught about African Americans and about Mexico. What Donald Trump said about Mexicans, they're rapists and they're thieves. <coughs> It's all of that racist crap that runs throughout white supremacist mindsets. Robert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And also, uh, Garland, you made a good point. This is, this is the narrative. This is the spin they want to put on it. And their, their audience was uh, uh, a Jewish conservative group. So, of course, they're saying what they want to hear because of, whether it's because they got campaign donations or promised the votes. Uh, one doesn't know for sure. But they are lies. Anyone who has any knowledge knows they're lies, but they're preaching to the choir, and this is what the people want to hear. Robert Fantine is a journalist and Palestine activist. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Patrick Lawrence has an excellent article at ConsortiumNews.com in which he details the difference between a nation that uses force to project the illusion of power and one that has the foundational properties needed to be strong. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Steve Porkin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. And on Rockfin.com, that's R-O-K-F-I-N.com, he hosts a great show called Slow News Day. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Good to be back. I think this is a great article. I love Patrick Lawrence's stuff. But he says, in the world order now emerging, it is genuinely strong nations that will prevail over those reliant on power alone and force will have little to do with it. And that makes me think of, you know, in the real world, we see people that talk a lot, have a lot of mouth, and they seem tough. And then there's the quiet guy over there that nobody really wants to mess with because they know he'll beat the crap out of everybody. Your thoughts on that, Steve? You're not wrong, Garth, and and we really it's I mean, we've talked about this before. What what it really comes down to is that uh, the United States and Western Europe have been in this controlled demolition where not just the um, you know the energy sector or the ability to um, 
you know, move goods and services in terms of the food supply chain or whatever has been falling apart. But our our ability to move as a country to do things that need to be done, not because it's going to generate, um, you know, everybody a uh, billion dollars or anything, but because there's a problem that has to be solved that doesn't have political underpinnings on it. We don't do that anymore. We're intentionally divided. We're intentionally, uh, you know, psychologically assaulted by our own government, according to Ned Price, who told us to expect it going into this conflict with Ukraine. Um, we are we're just fundamentally not on the same pages. The West and the way that uh, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have approached this next century, we're you know the U.S. is a, an empire trying to hold on to power that it thought it had and could only reinforce with bullets, whereas the rest of the world is trying to move to a more resource-based, multipolar approach to how problems get solved. It's uh, it's going to make for a heck of a clash. And to that point, it's obvious that Patrick Lawrence has been listening to and reading the speeches of Xi Jinping and listening to and reading the speeches of Vladimir Putin because these are the types of things that they have been saying and the United States, unfortunately, and the people in the West have been ignoring. China has a win-win strategy. And what you find out is that's not that's not uh, hyperbole. That's actually a strategy. Even domestically, they are in, they have been investing in their own economies, pulling their own people out of po- out of poverty. Putin has been saying the same thing. Russia has been doing the same thing. All the United States has left is uh, bullets and missiles, and what are now turning out to be a lot of empty threats. Well, and it's also important to note that that Russia's been doing it. Oh, under- oh I'm sorry. wait a minute. And and one more thing. I'm sorry. And one more thing. And the United States is, has now become so desperate that it's even turning on its own allies, as in attacking the pipeline and uh, which Russia helped to build, which uh, Germany helped to build. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what, what I was going to say is it's important to remember that Russia has seen all of their recent success under increasingly supposedly damaging U.S. sanctions. <laughs> so it's success right. in spite of obvious clear-cut economic warfare. And what that the signal that that sends that really ought to be horrifying to the people in D.C. and the halls of powers is we don't need you. We don't. We don't need you. We can do this without you. We can do this. Your kind of business has caused us nothing but problems to the point, as you you were talking about, Wilmer, um, you know, the obvious destruction of Nord Stream 1 and 2 by the United States. And I don't even know why it's remotely controversial on any level in any sphere of the media to point this out. We should the mainstream media should be going, you know what, guys, this is this is silly. Garland and I were talking about this earlier. But the reaction is this horrified incredulity that the US would ever dare to conduct an operation in NATO waters with the full cooperation of the host country and everybody intentionally looking the other direction. 
You know, the um, one of the interesting things about this article, he takes a lot of the information from President Putin's uh, le- speech last Friday. And, and let me read something to you. New centers of, from the speech, new centers of power are emerging. They re- and this is from President Putin's speech. New centers of power are emerging. They represent the majority, the majority of the international com- community. Now, this is important sentence. They are ready not only to declare their interests, but also to protect them. Sounds like he's gone full Malcolm X on us. And basically what President Putin says is, look, we're most of the people in the world. We are saying we have interest and we're willing to fight to protect them. You're not coming to get. I think that's a, it's a, you know, that that's a, to me, that's the meat of his whole speech. And, And even what Patrick Lawrence is saying here is there are people now who are saying no more hegemony, no work, no more coming, taking our bananas and our cacao and our oil and all the stuff you take. Those days are over and we're willing to stand up and make sure that doesn't happen. And that's what's freaking out the neoliberals. Your thoughts, uh, Steve? Absolutely. And to to kind of expand on that a little bit, I mean, in all of Putin's recent speeches, he's drawn uh, parallel examples from history. He's been able to to show uh, a, a depth of understanding that we rarely see from politicians, period. Um, but at, and he's doing it in a way that makes it um just really, really hard to argue around the facts as he's laid them out. So what that forces the West to do is it puts them in a position where they have to scream hyperboles at the top of their lungs and just hope one of them sticks long enough to dominate a news cycle. And eventually the truth is going to come out. The truth about what the Ukrainian army has been up to, the truth about what was in Ukraine beforehand, the truth about what the Biden crime family has been doing there for almost a decade or longer than a decade, but not just the Bidens. Tons of U.S. figures and figureheads are involved in all of this. So um, when he comes out and says, not only are we, we telling you what our interests are, but we're ready to protect them, that at least to me signals that they've been working on this. This is something that a lot of nations are involved in. This is something that they have cooperation on in multiple continents, and they're ready to move forward with a plan with or without the United States. This is something that we didn't send over to you, but this just struck me as very interesting, and I'd love to get your take on it. One, Zelensky said on Friday that he's requesting fast-track NATO membership. Now, Erdogan in Turkey has said, now not so fast, remember, I can still veto this. And then Zelensky said on Friday that he would not negotiate with Russia as long as Putin is in power. Now, President Putin has said, look, in his, in his last Friday speech, we'll sit down. We need to get to the table. We need to put an end to this, but I'm not going to give back what we already have acquired. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. Well, and he's not, and this is the impasse that is going to determine whether or not there's a legitimate World War III, because the West refuses to recognize the, the four breakaway republics that just joined the Russian Federation. They refuse to recognize those referendums as legitimate. According to the West, that's still Ukraine. 
according to the West, Vladimir Putin and Russia are illegally occupying at least four, if not five, including Crimea, territories in Ukraine. So, and in the eyes of the people that live there, and in the eyes of the Russian government, in the eyes of the governments of the breakaway republics, they are Russians and part of the Russian Federation. So, I don't know how you square that circle without either you know, Turkey or another NATO state going, look, this is just, this is insane. This is not going to happen. This is a clear path to nuclear annihilation. Um, that's, I mean, honestly, that's the only way that, that I, I see any cooler heads prevailing because Zelensky is clearly a puppet, you know, regardless of the substance abuse accusations. He's not speaking for himself, no matter how high or sober he is. How strong of a hand, how strong of a hand do you think Erdogan is playing right now? And if he says, look, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, you can you can try to expedite this if you want to. I'm not going to let it happen. Well, I I think he's in a very advantageous position. To do that. The Turks have been playing both sides of this w- without any scrutiny, really, the entire time. They have their own oil or uh, liquid natural gas pipeline infrastructure ready to go. They can choose which way they want. They can choose which side uh, of their bread to butter and more or less get away with it. So if the Turks are putting their foot down on this, that's pretty much everybody's going to have to listen. In uh, President Putin's speech, here's another interesting passage. Western countries have been repeating for centuries that they bring freedom and democracy to other peoples. Everything is exactly the opposite. Instead of democracy, suppression and exploitation. Instead of freedom, enslavement and violence. The entire unipolar world order is inherently anti-democratic and not free. It is deceitful and hypocritical through and through. Steve... There's one thing that will really infuriate a narcissist, and that's to tell them that they're a narcissist. This is really, I'll put it like this, it's glaringly obvious to the world, and I really believe in that. Not only was he speaking to the Russian people, but I think he was speaking to the global South and China, people who hear him, and everybody was shaking their heads, says, yeah, we're a witness to that, Steve. Well, not only that, but he was speaking directly to Western leaders saying, I see you. I see you for what you are. I'm going to let the rest of the world see you for what you are. And you're absolutely right. And to his point, I would even take it a step further and say that it's anti-human. There's the uh, yes, it's anti-democracy. Yes, it's anti-freedom. But uh, it's all rooted in a very, very anti-human worldview where the vast majority of us are quite literally peasants or pawns in order to be moved around on a board with by our betters. And it, it at least appears, and it's really, really, really easy to look like the good guy when the bad guy is so cartoonishly villainish. Uh, so I'm not, you know, but it's, it's, if you point this out to people and they're, they're allowing themselves time to notice it, um, the reality of it sinks in. Yes, the people who disagree with the way that the West has practiced empire for the last several hundred years are in a, a, uh, a vast majority. And there's kind of a, a karmic check due that uh, looks like it's about ready to be cashed. Patrick Lawrence's point, Putin's rhetoric has grown markedly sharper 
from February to last Friday. He has attacked the European Union for its selfishness and cowardice, the U.S. for its hegemonic aggression, including the genocide of Native Americans. To your earlier point, I think it was you that talked about he's he's putting his position in an, in a much larger historical context. Well, he is, and he's right to. And saying that that the EU is acting out of cowardice is one hundred percent correct. It may not be what they want to hear, but when you have members of the European Parliament saying, "Ah, votes don't matter. We're we're doing we're we have a different script we're reading off of." When you've got you know Ursula von der Leyen telling people, uh, "By the way, you are all Ukrainians, and we're going to fight till the last Ukrainian." Uh, regardless of whether you signed up for it or not. You, th- when they go out of their way to demonstrate that, that they are, in fact, behaving in the manner that Putin is calling them, suggesting that they are, um, it's... It, uh, here's what gets me. Lavrov has, in terms of changing tone, Lavrov has gone from partners to the West. Us are now our enemies. Um that to me says, regardless of what happens in the next couple of weeks, there's there's zero chance for reconciliation while Lavrov is is still foreign minister. Steve Porkinen is a national organizer for Action for Assange and host of Slow News Day at Rockfin.com. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon with my co-host Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. John Kiriakou traveled recently to Israel and Great Britain and came away deeply concerned about Julian Assange and the Palestinian people and many other things. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have John Kiriakou, former CIA author and host of Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much for having me. John has a great article. You can find it at consortiumnews.com. It's called A Depressing Journey. The author came away from a trip to Britain and Israel last last month, deeply concerned about human rights, Julian Assange, and the Palestinian people. And here's the author. John Kiriakou, your thoughts. Well, I, I am upset by what I learned. You know, the reason that I went to uh, to London and to Jerusalem in the first place was a Nigerian human rights issue. Uh, my friend and colleague, Bruce Fine, represents a man by the name of Mazi Namdikanu, who is the leader of a group called the Indigenous People of Biafra. Biafra is a, a, a region in Nigeria of some 70 million people, almost all of whom are Christians. Uh, they fought a civil war from 1967 and 1970 against uh, the, the Muslim-dominated government of Nigeria, and uh, two million Biafrans were killed. Well, the Biafrans want to uh, hold a referendum uh, for independence. And uh, as a result of that, and an interview he gave on the BBC saying that the Biafrans needed uh, to be able to, to choose their own futures, uh, Namdi Kanu was charged with treason and sentenced to death. So he was in Kenya last year meeting with other Biafrans. He was kidnapped by Kenyan police and they rendered him to Nigeria 
where he's been placed in solitary confinement and is awaiting his execution. So uh, we went to the UK, Bruce and I, because Namdi Kanu is a British citizen. His wife and his son live in Manchester. And we met with two members of the House of Lords and with myriad major uh, British uh, journalists, serious journalists, the Financial Times, Times of London, BBC, ITN, ITV, you get the idea. And uh, we said, look, what we really want is for the British Foreign Ministry to make a statement saying, this guy's a British citizen. The United Nations Human Rights Council has said that he should be released immediately. There were 16 violations of international law that the that the Nigerians are responsible for. And the response we got was, well, he's not really British. After all, he's black. So he's not really, truly British. Um, you know, maybe you, uh, you'd have uh, some better luck uh, in Israel. And the reason they suggested Israel is because Nandi, uh, although raised Catholic, is a convert to Judaism. So we went on to Israel, met with members of the Knesset, met with, with uh, a member of the cabinet, and met with uh, the acting prime minister, Yair Lapid. And we got the same response there. Well, he's not really Jewish. He's a convert. His mother's not Jewish, so he's not really Jewish. And he's black. So really the Brits should be worried about him. So as far as Namdi Kanu went, which was the real purpose of the trip, we failed. We didn't get any support in the UK. We didn't get any support in London. But since we were making this trip anyway, I decided to ask every interlocutor that we had, whether it was these two members of the House of Lords or any of the British uh, uh, journalists, about Julian Assange. And uh, their responses were uniform and, um, and very clear, that regardless of what Liz Truss says about Britain going it alone, Britain reconstituting its imperial past, the truth is that London is the lapdog of Washington. And Liz Truss, or anybody else who happens to find themselves as the prime minister of the UK, will do exactly as they're told by the White House. With what that means is that Julian Assange does not have a prayer of winning in a British court. He's going to be extradited to the United States, and he will face trial. What does the response to Namdi Kanu say to you about the consistent underlying ideology of white supremacy? Oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, I, I spent one of the happiest years of my life in London, studying at the University of London. This was 1985 to 1986. And I remember, as if it was yesterday, an article in the Times of London talking about the drug trade uh, in the UK. And they had a reporter go undercover and watch drug transactions take place. And in the final article in the Times, it said, the drug dealer, comma, a black, comma, made the transaction. And I remember thinking, as a, as a teenager, I remember thinking, what in the world relevance is this guy's race? And that was my first realization that British culture really is a racist culture. And I think that that inherent racism is what led to so many years, hundreds of years, 
of British imperialism. I mean, look at what the British did in Africa. Look what they did on the Indian subcontinent and elsewhere around the world. Uh, white supremacy is a real thing, and it's real today in 2022 in the UK. And I'll add, that's why Liz Truss is the prime minister today. Not that Liz Truss is terribly popular. She's not. In fact, she's grossly unpopular. But there's just no way that the Conservative Party was going to choose between two other brown men, one from Africa and one from, uh, from Pakistan, to be the prime minister of the UK. It's just not going to happen. I'd like for you to speak to that same question in the context of the obvious stratas or stratifications within Judaism. Oh, that's a, that's a very important point. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, Wilmer, it's something that I didn't expect when I got to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. This was my first trip to Israel. You know, I've been to 70 countries around the world, never had the opportunity to go to Israel. So this was my first trip. And when you arrive, you see there are a lot of people of African descent, mostly um, Ethiopians who live in, uh, in Israel, and a, and a small handful of West African uh, refugees who either are married to, to Israelis or are waiting for their paperwork to process. So I thought, oh, you know, this is a surprisingly um, uh, mixed society. It was kind of interesting to me. And then when I started to pay closer attention, I realized, no, it's not mixed. There are different tiers uh, of society in Israel. And if you're black, you're never going to make it to the top. Never. You're going you're gonna to work in some service industry. You're going to work making falafel sandwiches or whatever, or delivering newspapers. You're never going to really make it in, in Jewish society. Now, Nandi Kanu is Jewish. He chose to be Jewish. He's there raising his child Jewish. And still that's not good enough for the Israelis. Right. So he's not a, um, a Jewish person who happens to be black. He's a black person who happens to be Jewish because he's Correct. black first. So what that means, too, also is this, that Israel is a little chunk of Europe that stuck out into the Middle East, that it's a little chunk of, and so that the white, I'll put, use this word, the white Israelis, the white Jewish Israelis are afforded the, 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 the place on the caste system that a white European would have, and then that caste system goes down just the same as if it would be in, um, as the same as it, as it would be in Europe. And then that would be why it doesn't matter that over the course of a hundred or so years, the British starved 60 million, I've heard 50, 60 million Indians to death. The fact mm -hmm. that six million Jews were killed is going to be um, uh, uh, seen as one of the greatest crimes in history, which it is. But the crimes that the British committed are going to be ignored because they were against the Indians. You're absolutely right. You've hit it on the head. And I'll tell you, having spent so much of my career in the Middle East, in the Arab countries of the Middle East, I wasn't prepared for this. Because in the Arab countries, you, you do see discrimination against South Asians or against Filipinos, but that's economic uh, discrimination. You don't see racial discrimination. In fact, when I was serving in Kuwait, the, the crown prince of Kuwait, um, Sheikh, uh, oh, what was his name? 
Al-Abdullah. I forget his first name. But anyway, his mother was a Sudanese slave, and she was, she was freed by the royal family, and the emir's father married her. She had a child, and he became the crown prince. Um, so you don't get this. You don't get this racial discrimination. It doesn't. The shade of your skin in the Arab countries just doesn't make any difference. So to go to Israel, that's supposed to be so progressive and so European and so sophisticated, and to see essentially, I'm going to say it, 1960s America. Mm. Uh, that was a that was a, a shock to me. You close your piece. I asked a senior Israeli elected official if he thought there was a place for Arabs and Muslims in the Knesset. His response capped my trip. Quote, the thing about you Americans is that you think we're enemies with the Palestinians. We're not. It's not possible to be enemies with animals. Only humans and the Palestinians are animals. I was shocked to speechless when he said it. And he said it, I mean, it was a group of six of us. And he said it out loud with a slight smile on his face, like this was nothing out of the ordinary. Shocking. Wow. The last thing I'd like to ask you about is the issue of Assange. So, you know, when looking at this, all this discussion of will the, you know, will the British uh, high court decide this and that, blah, blah, blah. There is no British high court. It's all a fraud. It's just. It's all a fraud. Go ahead. Yeah. Garland, you're, ex- you're absolutely right. It's, it's all a fraud. This is just a process that the, that the British government is going through so that they can say, well, listen, we gave him the benefit of the doubt. He had the benefit of the entire British legal system. He went through every level of, of uh, the judiciary, and still we decided to, uh, to send him to the United States as part of this extradition. Um, that's just simply not true. The, the fix is in. The fix has been in for the beginning. from the beginning. Don't forget that Julian Assange is currently incarcerated on a charge of bail jumping, right? Wow. Now, the maximum possible uh, punishment for bail jumping is one year in jail. And he's been in jail for, what, two and a half years now. They're just holding him and just refusing to do anything. I mean, they're not even letting him out to, to seek medical care. We know that he's profoundly depressed. He's attempted suicide a number of times. He had a stroke last October. And they still won't even let him out long enough to see a doctor. So, yes, the fix is in. So really quickly, we got 25 seconds. Is the, is the, is the ultimate objective for him to die in Belmarsh Prison? I think that everybody at the Justice Department would be very happy if that were to happen. Yes. John Kiriakou is an author, and he is the co-host of Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 